something that I see a lot with coaches who who don't have a sound understanding of how the human body moves is they try and make everyone fit into a cookie cutter mold. Cookie cutters are for cookies. Not everybody is, is the same. And so you can't expect them to move in the same way. And telling everybody to, to move one specific way is in my opinion, kind of lazy human movements, incredibly complex and joints don't normally act in a uniform manner. Hey guys, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. Today we're joined by a fantastic guest, Dustin Lind. Dustin is a recent graduate from the University of Montana and just finished his doctorate in physical therapy and rehabilitation science. We discuss arm care, what a year-round strength program should look like, and whether surgery is always the best option when dealing with an injury. I was blown away by our conversation, and without further ado, let me introduce Dustin Lind. Hey, Dustin Lind, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Jonathan. I, uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, I am extremely excited to have you on. And first off, I want to say thank you for uh, something that you did for really the Twitter community and, and throughout the entire social media platform is the Hitting Drive. So if, you, yep. if you're not familiar with the Hitting Drive, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so the hitting drive started, gosh, probably two or three years ago. Um, I was actually doing a clinical affiliation, uh, for physical therapy school and I was living in a friend's attic and I would come home in the evening from the gym and I would be kind of bored. And I actually saw a video that Jerry Brewer did and he talked about how to get and edit hitting video and I just started putting it all together and I said, you know, this would be a good resource for hitters to have and so I put it on the Google Drive and and now it is what it is. It's, you know, thousands and thousands of videos. I have studies, uh, books on hitting in there. There's, It's just a really comprehensive hitting resource and it's completely free for hitters. As you stated, there's two things that are really important there. It is comprehensive. There are thousands of hitters that are on it and more importantly, it is free. So thank you for putting that together. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But most people, I think, that are on social media are familiar with that as well. So again, thank you for, thank you for putting that together because you probably have no idea how big of an impact that has been around not even our country, but just around the world. Well, that's awesome. I, that makes me feel really, really good. There's, there's been a lot of time and effort put into it. So, Well, before we get too far into this, uh, tell us a little bit about how you're getting started and, and what you're doing and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised here in Western Montana. Um, I went to high school in a small town south of Missoula here called Florence. There's one stoplight and there's under a thousand people there. So I grew up in kind of semi-rural Montana. I wasn't too far outside of a, out of a uh, bigger city by Montana standards, but, but I did grow up um, in a rural area. I was a three-sport athlete in high school. I played football, baseball, and basketball. And after high school, I went on and I played some college baseball at Sierra College in Rockland, California. And I played at Montana State University here in Billings. And in 2014, I graduated with an exercise science uh, degree, bachelor's degree from Idaho State University. 
in Pocatello, Idaho, and I just recently graduated from the University of Montana here in Missoula with a doctorate degree in physical therapy and rehabilitation science. Um, currently, I'm working as a physical therapist here in the Missoula area, and my main area of emphasis or patients that I'm treating most often are patients with um, post-surgical management of the knee and shoulder. Uh, so that's kind of something that I've worked myself into, and that's what I'm doing right now. Other than, than work and education experience, I'm happily married. I enjoy fly fishing, bow hunting, and, and training baseball players. That's, those are things that I really like to do. So it's official. We can, we can officially call you Dr. Lind. You can officially call me Dr. Lind now. <laughs> well, let me be one of the first to congratulate you on that. Well, thank you. So what made you decide to get into physical therapy? Well, my freshman year of college, I started looking around. I, I had an interest in health professions going into college, and, and my freshman year I went in. I was undecided for a major, and at that point in time, I was like, okay, I'm going to get serious about looking at a career in health professions. And I, I looked at everything and felt that physical therapy was really the best uh, fit for my personality and and really how I wanted to balance you know family life career um, there are a lot of really rewarding health professions out there that require you to work 60 to, to 70 hours a week and, and that just wasn't going to really fly with what I wanted to do outside of work um, I wanted to have hobbies besides my my work stuff that I was doing and so physical therapy I felt was really the the best avenue for me based on my personality and, and my interest in in working with athletes and so uh, what is your 10-year plan so say ideally in 10 years what exactly do you want to be doing well obviously working as a as a physical therapist but I want to be working in in close conjunction with athletes um, I have interests, obviously, in baseball, but I also have interests in basketball, um, football, rugby, and golf. So any sort of, of physical therapy rehabilitation um, job with, with athletes would be probably ideal in, in my mind, but it's always been a goal of mine to work with baseball players. I've always really enjoyed the game. Obviously, I played for a number of years, and, and so I'm familiar with it, and, and it's something that moving forward, I really want to be involved in baseball in some capacity. Most of our listeners are high school baseball coaches, and so say that I took over a high school baseball program this summer, and I called you and I said, Dustin, what is the first thing that I need to implement? Where do I start? Where I would probably start you is First things first, we would assess the facilities that you have available to you and how many athletes you're going to be training. If you're in an underfunded school, you might have to get creative with your exercises and, and your programming and your spacing for that matter as well. So, for example, in, in my high school in tiny little Florence, Montana, we had a weight room that had two squat racks and a leg press. And that's all we had as far as um, leg strengthening areas went. And so it's kind of hard to get a full baseball team in the weight room at the same time and have everybody run through a workout together. If, if you have smaller facilities like that, uh, possible solutions for that would be to have players staggered at 15 to 30 minute intervals that would help improve your productivity in the weight room. And you might have to invest in some more versatile resistance sources. So things like medicine balls, uh, Jager Sports J-Bands are another really good option. 
Eric Cressy actually wrote a really good article about two or three months ago. I believe it was a two-part article where he talked about alternative uses to the popular uh, J-bands that you see throwers use. And he talked about a lot of different ways that you can implement those into a strength and conditioning program um, besides that. So if you're in an underfunded or small school, you might have to get created. You might have to get more creative. Or if your school has good facilities, you can have a lot more variety. It really opens up some of the some of the options that that you have available to you. And so larger team lifting sessions are possible. You're able to bring the whole team in all at once. And there's more possibility for individualization if um, if you have more equipment available to you. In both situations, you're going to have to have some creativity on parts of the coaching staff or the supervising staff, whether you have a strength coach or an athletic trainer on staff um, is variable between schools. But in all situations, you're going to have to to uh, be a little more creative in, in some cases. I think most coaches would probably say they were either understaffed or didn't have the ideal equipment. Can you kind of walk us through what that would look like? So say you have 15 to 30 minutes and you mm-hmm. have probably, like you said, stagger it a little bit. So you'd have yep. two squat racks and a leg press. What would you do? Okay, so so if we were doing this at Florence High School, what I would do is I would have six players coming in at a time. And I would have players paired up. Uh, you could also get away with putting players in, in groups of three. And you could have them... Um, so one group is on one squat rack, the other group is on the other squat rack, and you're switching in and out every set if possible. So you're going to pair players with similar strength levels, and you'll be able to, to maximize your time with that. Once those guys are done with that, they move on to the next set. So dumbbell exercises, medicine ball exercises, uh, things like that, and then you bring your next group in. So you might have two or three groups come in total, but you're going to offset them by about 15 to 30 minutes, depending on the the kind of workout that you're going to be doing that day. And that'll allow you to keep eyes on all your lifters at at one time. And so it'll you know be good for safety, obviously, but it'll also be good for productivity and also uh, players having more gains. Okay, I think I see what you're saying. So you'd have one guy lifting and then one guy probably spotting for safety. Yep. And then you might have yes. another guy that's doing some sort of alternative exercise. And with your other exactly. groups, med balls or just whatever else you decide uh, that you're planning on doing for the day. And so after this allotted period of time, you everybody would switch. Yep, absolutely. And then they would cycle through and, and you would have the early group, they would be gone and out of there by the time the the second group was starting their last set of exercises and then that second group would leave and then the late group would leave after that say you've got two to three days a week and that's it for lifting now what are the absolutes that we need to hit in those two to three days and it might depend on time of year so i'm going to let you get a little creative with this and however you want to answer it but what are what are some of the absolutes that we have to hit as far as baseball players go as far as baseball players go, you're definitely going to um, the way that I typically structure workouts. If if I only have two or three days of lifting, what I'll do is I'll do a full body workout and I'll do that twice a week. And then I'll have an optional third day where we do shoulder health. We'll do hip work. We'll do 
trunk stability. We'll do rotational power activities on that third day. So a person would come in and typically I go two to three exercises per muscle group. So if we have a hip or, well, we'll say a glute dominant exercise like a barbell hip thrust, that's one exercise that hits the glutes. We'll do another exercise that hits the glutes. We might do a, a band resisted side shuffle, um, also known as a crab walk for, for some rehab professionals or some strength coaches. Um, and what I'll do is I'll superset it so we're not spending a ton of time in the weight room. So we'll do a quad exercise and a hamstring exercise. So I'll do you know lunges and then I'll turn right around and I'll do single leg RDLs and I'll switch back and forth between those two exercises and that's one super set. Or you can make it a giant set and you can go your quad exercise, your hamstring exercise, and then you throw in an extra, we'll say an abdominal exercise. So you're getting three different muscle groups and you're working continuously. That'll help keep things moving and that'll keep your lifting session short enough that you're not in there for three or four hours at a time. And so doing that, it really depends on the periodization model and where you're at with that. That's that's kind of the skeleton outline of what I'll do. I'll say, okay, we need to hit these muscle groups today. Let's set it up in such a way that we can get in and out efficiently, and let's get the full body workout in twice a week, and then we'll do an optional shoulder, hip, and uh, an abdominal day or trunk day on that third day if you only have three days to lift. Okay, and so to individualize, would you just group them up into – like you said, like strength groups, or would you uh, would you have separate exercises for each kid based on his needs? I would probably have separate exercises if you have the facilities available, uh, separate exercises for each kid based on their needs. And what I would do to get that hammered down with your team is I would enlist the help of a skilled professional to help evaluate your athletes. Um, this will allow you to as a as a baseball coach to kind of put your head together with uh, a strength and conditioning professional a rehab professional who who might have kind of a, a more in-depth knowledge of what an athlete could need for their specific anatomical makeup and then you'll work together to kind of build that skeleton framework of what training modalities you'll use so for example pretty much every player on a baseball team is going to perform some variation of deadlift in their training program. Slight modifications are going to be made to the lift based on the player's previous training experience, what equipment you have available, and then anatomical factors such as hip mobility. So we'll say something like poor hip mobility is found in one of your athletes. You might have to modify the exercise and instead of doing a traditional barbell deadlift from the floor. You might have to do something like a rack pull where the the barbell is lifted off the the lifting platform for you know six to eight inches and you might have to do something like a trap bar deadlift um, instead of a traditional deadlift so these are the kinds of modifications that you'll need to make with individual athletes based on what they have i understand what you're saying and it all comes back to getting that assessment at the very first of the year and trying to see where all of your athletes stand from there 
Absolutely. And and you, you have to understand that your athletes are going to change from year to year, potentially even from month to month. Just because a guy comes in and he's really, really loose mover does not mean he's going to be that way once he puts on 20 to 25 pounds of muscle, especially high school uh, male athletes. They change so much from their freshman year to their senior year. Um, constant evaluation and reevaluation of the athlete is going to be really, really important for them moving forward. And so how often would you uh, ideally get assessed? Typically, if I had a choice, I would assess the athlete once a year. Um, if they're going through really, really big musculoskeletal changes, I might do it every six months, but typically once a year is, is when I would take a look at, at the athlete. How do you sit down and decide that what you're, what exactly what you're doing is working? Well, from a rehab standpoint, if there's pain, we need to start looking at what the potential problem might be. If we have musculoskeletal pain, that's not normal, obviously. And so we need to sit down and assess, okay, what's going on? If there's a, uh, an increase in pain and a decrease in strength, something is definitely wrong. We need to take a really close look at it. But as far as strength and conditioning goes, typically if players are continuing to improve, uh, I don't change course all that much. I'm going to, you know, modify programs every six to eight weeks and and um, switch things in and, and move things around that may or may not be working for them. But if somebody's starting to plateau, what we need to look at is obviously injury. You know, is the athlete injured? But then we also need to look at fatigue. And I'm going to get on my sleep quality soapbox for a little while here because poor sleep quality is completely rampant amongst all levels of athlete. I mean, whether it's high school, college, professional, uh, sleep quality is really, really poor overall. And that's our number one recovery strategy. And so if we're not getting good quality sleep, we're not going to recover effectively. And our body's breakdown of the muscles and, and the tissues surrounding the joints is going to outpace our ability to recover and, and rebuild those tissues, basically. So that's a very probable cause for plateau in training. So if, a, if an athlete is coming in and they're just not making any gains whatsoever, we're, we're going to look at sleep quality first, we're going to look at nutrition, and then we're also going to maybe modify lifts in the end. You're going to change exercises and, and things like that, obviously. But those are those are the key culprits that, that will keep you from getting what you want out of a strength and conditioning program. So sleep quality uh, and nutrition, those are two things that especially youth athletes and just athletes in general need to be conscious of. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I've been a high school coach for five years. And okay. one question that we have, well, two questions. Uh, let me start with this first one is, what does lifting look like in season? Can you lift on game days? Is that just completely out? you know, out in left field? Should we not do that? But how do we get around that? So this is lifting in season can be done. I prefer to not lift on game day unless it's after a game. So leading up to competition, if possible, I like to space my my heavy lifting days 48 hours before competition. Uh, that gives the body adequate time to recover from the stresses of strength training, and it also maintains your, your strength levels. Basically, the way that the periodization model is broken down, we've talked about it a lot. It's probably about time to <laughs> actually discuss what it is. 
But I, I typically go through four phases of the periodization model. I, I use a model that has off-season, pre-season, in-season, and post or after the season is over. So in the off-season, we're starting with uh, higher volume, lower intensity workouts. We're going to progress training. And as volume is taken away, we're going to increase the intensity. This can either be a slow ramp up or we can do it fairly quickly depending on the overall training time that you have available to you, to you during the off season. Number one priority during this time is to improve movement quality, strength, and just overall fitness. You're going to use a lot of different exercise selections that are less specific to the sport. So you're going to use a lot a lot of load. It's going to be a, a heavily overloaded exercise selection. You're not going to spend tons of time on skill acquisition during this time, and you're going to spend more time in the weight room and the gym, uh, kind of working on overall fitness. As you move into the preseason, so this is like the last month or two, it can be up to two months before the season starts, you're going to really take that overload principle down and you're going to do more specific exercises so if we look at baseball or baseball batting for example the most specific thing that we can do with baseball batting is hitting in a game the least specific thing that we can probably do that has the least amount of transfer of training or guaranteed transfer of training is probably something like a really heavily loaded back squat or something like that just because you can back squat a lot does not necessarily mean that you're going to be a good baseball hitter. So we're, what we're going to do in the preseason is we're going to do more time with specific exercises like hitting, throwing, fielding, and we're going to scale back what we're doing in the weight room. And we're going to transition to more powerful movements. So uh, deadlift, we're going to do med ball throws, uh, we're going to transition into that in season. And once we get in season, typically I have guys lift two times a week if possible. If they can do more, awesome, but two times a week is the minimum. And like I said before, if we're going to have somebody lift, I prefer it to be 48 hours before game day. Now with the minor league baseball players that I train, they don't have a choice. They're playing six nights a week, and so they have to lift at some point during the day. And so they're probably going to lift in the morning before the game or in the early afternoon before their game. Um, but most high schoolers aren't playing six nights a week. At least I would sure hope not. So what they would do is they would they would lift during those two times a week. And all we're trying to do in season is maintain the strength levels that we have that we have built up during the off season and the preseason. Then once you finish your season and you get into this post season or after season phase, we don't have a rigid training schedule. We don't have workouts. We don't have anything like that. It's all about rest and recovery and healing up any nagging injuries that you have. So that's the periodization model that I use. And that's what in season lifting would look like. You're doing high intensity lifts. You're probably in the weight room for about 45 minutes to an hour on your two days a week that you're lifting. And you're doing that 48 hours before you compete. You mentioned scaling back. Is that reps or weight? And what are your thoughts behind that? I, I scale back the number of reps and the number of sets that we do. Uh, so baseball is a power sport. Longest play in baseball is about 12 or 13 seconds. So, you know, the, the main focus should be 
power and and strength endurance, especially for pitchers. Um, it's a powerful movement. So we were training in the six to well the two to six rep range. You can go up to eight, but most people train in that two to six rep range. So we scale the reps back. The weight and the intensity of the exercise, however, stays the same. Okay, that makes sense. Now, for my other question that we get a lot. So said high school pitcher has thrown two or three days ago and comes up and says, hey, coach, my arm is sore. And immediately you have, okay, you need to throw more or you don't need to throw at all. It could be a variety of things, but just bicep, elbow, or shoulder. What are, what are your thoughts? You know, this is actually really interesting because these are the most common problems that I see in youth athletes and high school athletes. And the two things kind of go hand in hand. So what we have is we have a lot of overuse injuries and we have poor strength. Those two things go in, go hand in hand because the weaker you are, the less strong that you are, the lower your capacity is for work. And so this is why the off season is really, really important and why guys need to get off the couch and not play Xbox so much and get in the gym and, and work on their arm because when they get in season, what they have is there. We're not going to make any gains in season and throwing doesn't build strength. And so what we have is what we have as far as strength goes into the season. And so it depends on the individual player and how much they've thrown, how much they've pitched and how well they recover. Some guys don't recover that well and they take days and days and days to, to get over, you know, a short outing out on the mound. Um, and so these, these things, they go hand in hand. What I see a lot of are problems with the, with the shoulder and I'll, I'm going to dive into to some shoulder mechanics real quick. I'm Absolutely. going to try and keep it really, really kindergarten because I don't want people to glaze over and fall asleep on us here. But yeah, please it's do. really it's it's really important to know. So the things that I see a lot uh, coming into the clinic are uh, scapular issues. So shoulder blade issues, uh, things like dyskinesis, which is basically just faulty movement of the shoulder blade. It's kind of a garbage term that catches everything. Scapular winging is another thing that I see where the, the medial border or that inside edge of the shoulder blade that's closest to the spine pops up off the rib cage. What happens when that pops up off the rib cage is the shoulders kind of roll forward and we shrink that subacromial space. So out on the edge of the scapula there, we have what's called the acromion process and there are a number of, of different structures that sit underneath that rotator cuff tendons. Um, we have nerves that pass underneath there. And when that space shrinks, it's already pretty small to begin with. When that space shrinks, we compress those, those tendons and they get very, very painful. And so when we don't have scapulas that are working properly, and they wing off and they pop off the rib cage. We shrink down the subacromial space and we start pinching on all these structures. That's a problem. That's what causes a lot of pain. So we need to suck that scapula back onto the rib cage by engaging a, a muscle called the serratus anterior. Um, other things that I see with the scapula, it's insufficient upward rotation. So when we bring the arm up overhead, like baseball players do a few hundred times a day to throw a baseball, the scapula upwardly rotates to follow the ball and socket joint. So we have the, the humeral head, which sits inside the glenoid fossa, which is part of 
the the shoulder blade, this the scapula there. And as we come up over the top, if we don't get enough upward rotation, we get really sloppy joint mechanics and we start having that ball rolling around on the socket. It's it's very similar to a golf ball on a tee. So this the socket is very, very shallow and it rolls around and it impinges structures. It can impinge tendons. It can also fray uh, structures as the labrum, uh, like the labrum. And, and this is going to cause obviously arm pain. Um, another thing that we see is postural deficiencies, rounded shoulders. Everybody sits in class all day long with rounded shoulders and a forward head. And these are going to exacerbate the problems that we already see. Now within the shoulder joint itself, that's just the shoulder blade within the shoulder joint itself, we have a lot of different issues, especially with throwers. We have a lot of general instability issues. We can have slap lesions, which stands for superior labral tear, anterior to posterior. And so that's a tear of the labrum on the top part of the labrum where the biceps hooks in. We see a lot of that because people are unable to control the ball in the socket. And we also see internal rotation deficits in, um, in throwers, which is a really, really high indicator of, of future in- injury is what a lot of medical studies have found. Now, how we fix all this stuff is we, we basically have to strengthen the muscles around it so that it compresses that ball on the socket a little bit better. So when the rotator cuff fires, it pulls the ball into the socket and it pushes it down. So it compresses and depresses the humeral head. And this help, helps to clear more space underneath the, uh, underneath the, the acromion process there. And if you think about it, when we throw, we have huge, huge, huge forces that we're putting on these tiny, tiny little muscles. So during throwing, the shoulder undergoes a, a full body weight of distraction forces at the shoulder at ball release. So as we're releasing the ball... What's happening is the force from throwing the ball is basically pulling the shoulder out of the socket. And, and those four tiny rotator cuff muscles are hanging on for dear life to keep that thing in place. And so this, this is a huge deal. That's a huge demand to place on four small muscles. And, and so that's why we need to strengthen those muscles. That's why we need to, to improve the, the overall stability of the joint during the off-season. Because once we're in season, the, the time for preparation is really past. Um, so if we start having elbow pain, shoulder pain, there's, there's generalized muscular soreness, which is normal after, you know, really, really intense throwing sessions. But then there's uh, joint pain that, that doesn't go away and it throbs and it's there and it's achy for, for hours on end. Um, that's of more concern to me than general muscular soreness. And, and so if a player is coming in and, and saying, you know, coach, my, my arm's really, really sore, what I would do is I would have them get on their strengthening exercises and uh, make sure that, that those muscles aren't shutting down on them and, and becoming weak. And that would kind of dictate what we would do moving forward. I don't know if I really answered the question very well, but, but that's kind of the approach that I would take. I would make sure that everything was still aligned properly and that he had good strength. And if he has good strength, then we're, then we're going to be in pretty good shape.
So what would be some of the exercises we could measure their, their scapular strength with that you're talking about? Um, if they come through, you can do just a, a light manual resistance to the rotator cuff and see how fired up that is. You can also see it. In this case, I would probably grab your athletic trainer or a physical therapist who's, who's nearby, and I would run them through some tests. You might have some shoulder impingement going on. I mean, these are tests that, that I wouldn't expect uh, a high school baseball coach to understand how to do and um, interpret. That's not really within your guys' scope of practice right there. I mean, your, your guys' job is skill development and game strategy. You guys don't have to be full-on medical professionals. So knowing when to defer to a medical professional in this case is going to be really, really important. If you have a, a kid come up to you with really persistent arm pain, having someone, you know, on speed dial that you can say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's have you go in and get looked at by this person who, who deals with this and sees this literally every single day, um, that's going to be something that's going to be really, really beneficial. So you can test rotator cuff strength. You can test um, serratus anterior strength. You can do things like that. You can check some quick range of motion and things like that. But that's not something that I would really expect a baseball coach to, to have to know how to do. I would have someone that, that you trust uh, a good rehab professional, whether it be, you know, your school's athletic trainer or a physical therapist in the community, I would send that person, I would send that player to them for some further testing if that arm pain is persistent. So switching gears a little bit, what's the latest thing that you've learned that you're really excited about? Well, in my last clinical affiliation that I did, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of athletes um, post-surgically. So we had a ton of college athletes coming in with uh, big-time knee surgeries, big shoulder surgeries, big elbow surgeries, and being able to see them from ground zero um, all the way until, you know, return to play in, in pretty much every case, um, was really, really cool because I was able to see them, you know, getting out of the brace for the first time or out of the sling for the first time. Okay. Now let's teach you how to walk again without your crutches. And then that whole from ground zero all the way to, to return to play was, it was just a really cool opportunity for me to see how the same principles that we apply in strength and conditioning apply in physical therapy, even on ground zero, you have to be systematic and you have to understand what structures were involved and you have to protect those structures and stress them appropriately so they heal at an appropriate rate. So the whole process of returning athletes from day two or three post-operative back to play was, was a really cool experience for me because the demands of an athlete are so much higher than just an average person who who goes and sits behind a desk for their entire you know work day. Um, so that was a really, really cool experience and and that's something that I get to apply every single day in in the job that I'm doing now. so really your your job is different every single day. It really is. I mean, i'll I'll come in on any given day and I'll have you know five patients who have undergone knee surgeries, but they're five different procedures. And I have to understand, well, I mean, for, for example, last week I, I saw on Thursday, I saw three athletes who had ACL surgeries and each athlete had a different kind of 
ACL graft put in. And each one has a different surgical protocol that they have to follow. And so I have to game plan appropriately based on what structures were affected. Um, and I have to be able to, to know how to progress each of them. And so it's a lot of fun for me because I have to be on my, you know, on my best thinking game every single day. And I have to think things through logically and say, okay, well, this is the structure that was injured. This is the structure that is currently hurt. This is how I have to work around it in order to, to stress that tissue appropriately, but not overload it and cause further injury. And so you've gone through several years of, of uh, school. How many years exactly? This will be, let's see, eight years total. I, I spent my freshman year taking a bunch of classes that did not count towards a health science degree. And um, so five years to get my, my bachelor's degree and then th- three years for my doctorate degree. And so during that time, what is something that's, what's one stance that you've changed since you, since when you began to where you are today? This is a very, very good question. Um, the thing that has changed the most for me is I do not think of surgery as the best option for everything anymore. I used to think that surgery was an easy fix. You go in, you cut them open and you, you know, you bolt something down or you screw a plate in there or you, you know, put a new ligament in there and, and they're good to go. I, I cannot tell you that that is how I feel today. I see so many different complications, um, from surgeries and it's really, really, I mean, surgery carries an inherent risk. Anytime you go into the body and you cut it open, you're, you're kind of gambling a little bit. Granted, we, we have really good surgeons in this country and, and in the area that I'm in, we're very lucky to have some very proficient surgeons. Um, but I mean, we, we talk about things like Steve Kerr, he came out two weeks ago, he's not able to coach right now because of complications that he's having from a surgery. And, and Steve Kerr himself said, you know, don't let anybody go in there, rehab, rehab, rehab. And he had so back surgery. he had back surgery. And we see the same thing in baseball populations now where, you know, we have so many Tommy John surgeries happening, which is an ulnar collateral ligament repair. And we have players coming back and, and really, Statistically speaking, the return to sport uh, statistics are really quite good, but it it's not a smooth process by any means. Um, we're going in there and we're fixing something that is really, really difficult to fix, and it's really, really difficult to rehab. Surgery carries an inherent risk of infection. I mean, you're going in there. It, although infection rates are low, it does happen. And then you also have issues regaining range of motion and strength. I mean, there there is no surgery that's really, really user-friendly. There, there are a lot of situations where it's absolutely necessary. Uh, you know, a torn ACL is not going to heal on its own. You have to go in and you have to have that surgically repaired. But there are a lot of other conditions that there's compelling evidence to suggest that that surgery might not always be the most effective option. So that's probably the thing that's changed the most for me in the last seven or eight years of attending school. And like you said, each situation is individualized, but what are some of those situations you were talking about that might not be the best option? Something that we have seen recently is back injuries are oftentimes 
better treated with rehabilitation. Patients typically have similar outcomes to back surgery, but they spend a lot less money doing it. Um, so there are some studies that have come out in the last three or four years that seem to suggest that rehabilitative services rather than back surgery is a good way to go for uh, certain kinds of, of back injuries. We can, in the baseball community, we can see that there are some partial UCL tears that don't require Tommy John surgery. If we look at a pitcher like Masahiro Tanaka, he had a UCL tear and um, did actually not have to end up having surgery, and, and he's really pitching quite well, all things considered, with with traditional or, well, not traditional, but more conservative therapy options. So in baseball, we, we can see, you know, some UCL tears do okay with that. Occasionally, labral tears, depending on the type of labral tear, we can rehab that. Uh, torn rotator cuff muscles, depending on the degree and the grade of tear, we can rehab those. Um, you see a lot of pitchers going on the DL with uh, shoulder strains now. That's, a bit, that's basically what that is. It's a torn, partially torn muscle, either in the shoulder complex or in the upper arm, and they they are less willing to go under the knife for, for injuries like that, and they're more willing to try out conservative therapy. You know, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a good friend of mine who's a back surgeon down in Utah, and he said, you know, we can always undo conservative treatment. He said, I can send a patient to, to you in physical therapy for six weeks, and we can always undo the exercises that you choose to do down there. However, when we go in and we do surgery, the effects, the consequences of that surgery, whether they be good or bad, are, are permanent, and you have to live with that. So you can have really good surgical outcomes. Um, for me, personally, I had a shoulder operation 10 years ago, probably one of the best decisions I've made in my life. I mean, I've, I've got no recurring shoulder instability now. I have no clicking, no popping. My shoulder feels great, feels fantastic, where it was in, in a lot of pain before. But not every situation is good. And so that's, that's a conversation that needs to happen between uh, the, the surgeon, the physician, and the, and the rehab professional and, and deciding, you know, is this really a case that we can get away with not having to, to cut someone open to fix. No, that makes a lot of sense. Again, switching gears a little bit, where do coaches that don't have the understanding of the body that, that people who study the field, where do we get it wrong? Like what are some things that you see that high school coaches or just any coaches in general don't quite get right? You know, something that I see a lot with coaches who – who don't have a sound understanding of how the human body moves is they try and make everyone fit into a cookie cutter mold. I I'm sure people have heard me tweet this or seen me tweet this on Twitter. Cookie cutters are for cookies. Um, not everybody is, is the same. And so you can't expect them to move in the same way. Each person has different anatomy. They're a little bit different in how their uh, body is put together and their preferential movement patterns and telling everybody to, to move one specific way is, in my opinion, kind of lazy. Human movement's incredibly complex and joints don't normally act in a uniform manner. So for example, 
the knee joint is classified as a hinge joint. I've seen a lot of coaches say, oh, it works just like a door hinge, which is not at all accurate because the knee, while it does roll, those femoral condyles that sit on the tibial plateau, they're not perfectly round. They're actually more egg-shaped. And so as they roll, there's a fair amount of rolling that goes on, but there's also a fair amount of glide that happens either forward or backwards, depending on whether you're bending or straightening the knee. And then during the last 15 degrees of knee straightening, we also get external rotation. And so we have six different planes of motion in one knee joint that's classified as a hinge joint. Now, I'm not saying that, that the knee joint being classified as a hinge joint is incorrect by any means. That's, that's more or less how it operates, but it doesn't operate as simply as most people would say. And, and so what I see baseball coaches do a lot of times is they simplify the way that the shoulder and the, the hip move because the shoulder and the hip have something called the joint capsule that surrounds them. This joint capsule is, is made up of ligaments that are plastic in nature. So if we took plastic and we heated it and we stretched it out, it would stay that way. That's basically what happens with our ligaments. So if we put stress on them and we stretch them out, then they stay that way. So in, in throwers, we slide that humeral head into the anterior joint capsule or the front of the joint capsule and we stretch those those ligaments over and over and over and over well those ligaments then become loose and as a result the posterior ligaments shorten so the body's going to adapt based on the the stresses that we place on it the hip is very very similar so there are a lot of athletes with really really poor hip mobility because they're you know, joint capsule is really, really stiff. And so if a coach were to say, well, this is how the the joint works in all high-level baseball players, that's not the case because not every high-level baseball player has a joint that is uniformly, um, that moves in a uniform manner, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely makes sense. And one reason why baseball is so hard Yep, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting. The the coaches who really push this cookie cutter mold on people, they, they see a standard bell curve of success. And so for people who are not familiar with what that is, basically you have the vast majority, in many cases about 50%, fall under, you know, the the little to no change category. You're going to have another, you know, quarter, 25% of your athletes who improve a whole heck of a lot. And then you're going to have another 25% of your athletes who don't really improve that much. And so if you go in and you say, this is the way that everybody has to do it, what you're going to get is you're only going to get about a quarter of your athletes who are actually really making any real improvements. Everybody else is going to be stay about the same, or they're going to be much worse off. So is that what you think makes a good coach, being able to not just teach to the top 10 or bottom 10 to be able to make a plan for everybody? Yeah, I think so. I think the ability to, to individualize is a really, really big attribute that really good coaches have. Um, the best coaches, in my opinion, the, the ones who I've interacted with, who I feel are the best, are the ones who feel that they always have more to learn. As soon as you think you have it figured out, you're, you're toast. So the best coaches, they consistently seek quality information and they find ways to apply it with their athletes on an individual basis. 
Um, so being in tune with the individual athlete is really, really important. Sometimes being a, a, a good coach is more about being a better listener rather than a better speaker. And they help athletes really discover their best selves. In my opinion, that's what makes the best coaches the best. So you said that they are lifelong learners and they, they try and learn quality information. What, is some of, what are some of your favorite resources and quality information out there? As far as exercise programming goes, I really like NSCA. That's National Strength and Conditioning Association. Um, I really like their Essentials of Strength and Conditioning book for exercise programming. It really gives you an easy-to-read, very straightforward resource for this is how the evidence says we should program our athletes. And it provides really good rationale for certain kinds of programming. It's got basic concepts in there that are really easy to apply across the spectrum for exercise. And it's where I pull a lot of my strength and conditioning knowledge from. For those of you who are interested in neuroscience and human movement, um, there's a book out there called The Neuroscience of Human Movement by Charles T. Leonard. Um, I actually had the opportunity to have Chuck, as, as we call him, as one of my teachers in physical therapy school. He is probably the most intelligent human being I've ever, ever interacted with. It. He's absolutely brilliant, and his book is an awesome, awesome resource if you want to get more into the neuroscience of human movement. It's certainly the easiest neuroscience book you'll ever read, and it's very straightforward. It's short. It's really, really easy to read. He gives great examples, and uh, it's fantastic. And if I were to, to take that a step further and kind of mesh the two between strength training and neuroscience, um, that strength training and coordination book, an integrative approach by Franz Bosch, um, that's Fantastic. a very, very, yeah, it's a really good book. Um, I think there are some parts in the book where he could have gone a little more in depth, but as far as providing a, a resource for challenging traditional strength training that's a really really good resource and it's an easy read too that's the nice thing it's not it's it's not something that you're going to be like oh gosh i i can't get through this book it's it's fun to read it's it's very informative and it and it gives you really really good examples so what are your favorite uh baseball resources um the mental game of baseball is is one that I uh, read a long time ago that I really really like for hitting. I love the science of hitting by Ted Williams. I, as far as I'm concerned, I I haven't seen a better hitting resource out there. Um, that's a really really good book, and that's also accessible through the Google Drive that I put together. I you'll find that under the additional resources folder and you'll be able to to pull it up it up it's in pdf form which is really really nice um another resource that i really really like is jerry brewer's east bay hitting website jerry has a litany of articles that he has written and they are all uh, almost without exception extremely extremely good um really really good valuable info there that you can get com for completely free yeah and uh, poor us, because I think Jerry has retired from the game. Yeah, that's that's the word on the street. We'll see if we can talk him out of retirement sometime soon. I hope so. We need to start a petition. Yes, we do. <laughs> if, but from the looks of it, he's having a pretty good time uh, cooking some barbecue. Absolutely. I don't, I don't want to get too off topic here. All right, <laughs> so uh, before we let you go, 
What is your favorite baseball experience? My favorite baseball experience, um, well, in Montana, we don't have high school baseball. So we play Legion baseball from March to about mid-August. Um, this gives you a chance to be around the same teammates for about six months out of the year, which is which is a really cool opportunity that you don't always get other places if you're playing on different teams throughout the year. And over the course of the season, you'll develop a lot of really good fr- friendships and you'll become very close with, with a lot of your teammates. Um, we had a ton of talent my sophomore season of high school, and we came up short and we lost in the state championship game by two runs. I remember after that game, we, we all got together, everybody was returning and we went into our off season with the expectation that we would win the whole thing next year. We said, we're going to do whatever it takes and we're going to climb the mountain. And, uh, we put in an incredible amount of work that off season and, you know, time in the weight room, time in the cage. Um, and we came out and we went, I believe we went 55 and 11. We had a fantastic year. Uh, we rolled to the state championship game. We won the state title. And then after that, we went to the regional championship and we won the regional championship. And, uh, there's no better feeling than, than dogpiling on the mound after you, after you've won a championship game like that. It's just incredible. Um, so for me, looking back, the amount of work that we put in to climb the mountain, that's something that I'll never forget. And then being rewarded at the end with, with all that state championship and regional championship hardware. Um, that was an incredible experience. And that's something that, that I still look back on. That was 10, 10 or 11 years ago. And I still look back on that fondly. So definitely my favorite baseball experience there winning state and regional championships. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I know there are going to be a ton of people who get something from this and probably want to get in contact with you regarding just anything that we talked about. So where can we find you online or just where can we get in? How can we get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Dustin Lind. That's all lowercase. Uh, no spaces, no hyphens, no nothing like that. At Dustin Lind. Um, I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. So if it's more of an urgent matter and you want to hear back quickly, I would just email me. I, I check my email multiple times throughout the day and, and I, I'm usually really good about getting back to people on that. So you can email me at Dustin period Lind. That's L I N D at U. That's the letter U Montana dot edu. All right, perfect. And I will include that in the show notes. Uh, Dustin, is there anything else that you'd like to add before you go? No, I uh, I think we've we've had a really good discussion. We've covered a lot of different stuff regarding rehab and player development. And uh, if anybody has any questions, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm always more than happy to to chat baseball. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to get in touch with me or view the show notes, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.